0: Hello, and welcome to the Los Angeles Intergroup Step 12 Part 2 Workshop, Practicing These Principles in All Our Affairs. Today, our speaker, Denise B. from Southern Ireland, has Zoomed all the way over to share her story with us and why she is so passionate about these chapters and how we can get through the holidays and many events and circumstances in our lives without causing too much wreckage. Denise has been coming to the rooms for over nine years and I will pass it over to her. And off you go, Denise. Thank you, Susan. Hi, everybody. Uh, It's lovely to see you all. And uh, I'm Denise B, gratefully recovered compulsive overeater by the grace of God for today. And just to qualify myself, as Susan said, my abstinence date is the 21st of July, 2012. I have a sponsor who has a sponsor and I sponsor, and that's very, very important. So I'm right in the middle of the beam, as I say. And yeah, and OA, um, by the grace of God, I found these rooms. Uh, I crawled in on my hands and knees in excess of 350 pounds. I am a hundred pounder. I also had severe restriction in my story so I have run everything in this illness. Um, I was beaten, I was broken, I had nowhere else to go. And OA was the last chance. I came into the rooms, and for the first time, when people said welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, Welcome Home, I absolutely felt that. But it took me a few months. You know, I still wasn't willing to give up the ghost, I'll be honest. Um, it did take me a few months. I got a sponsor. And that's when I surrendered. I was willing to go to Annie Lentz. I worked the program through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got into living in 10, 11, and 12, and thus has been my journey. And as Susan has said, I am very, very passionate about these chapters. So the first thing I want to say today is I do not speak on behalf of OA. This is my own experience. This is my own journey, and this is what I'm going to share with you. I would also encourage any of you, we have two hours today to do this, just so everybody's aware. I do these chapters a full week at a time with a sponsee. So we study them, we go into detail in them. So it's going to be a very top line whistle-stop tour today that we're going to do just because of the time limitations. So I would encourage all of you, if you haven't done these chapters, go talk to your sponsor ask about them do them get into more detail in them study them there's a huge amount uh, in them there and i'll talk a little bit about that at the end and you know it is the second part of step 12 so step 12 is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs So we're going to talk a little bit about what that actually means. We're going to work out of the big book um, of AA because they are the chapters. So chapter seven in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is the chapter that pertains to carrying the message. And chapters eight, nine and ten are the chapters that work around practicing these principles in all of our affairs. So we're going to go through the chapters, top line. We're going to get into a little bit of assignments. We're going to talk a little bit about it. Hopefully we'll have some time to share. And then at the end of the workshop, I'm also going to stay on for a little bit. So if anybody has any questions that they don't get to ask during the time, please feel free to stay on after the workshop to um, discuss those. So without further ado, I think um, I'll try not to bore you too much as we go along, but uh, let's kick off. So Susan, if you want to pull up the first slide there, maybe I'll set the scene a little bit around that, please. Thanks, Susan. So if you want to set it to maybe slideshow, we can just go one at a time on that. I have to find that button. So if you, go do, if you go down to the very bottom and you see it's like a little square with a television almost on it at the very bottom toolbox. Yeah, go over, down in your toolbox. Yeah, come over, Nope. come down your cursor and go right. Right down and keep coming. Yeah, next one over, next one, there you go. There you go, and if you go back up to the start, just use your arrows on your laptop. There you go. Brilliant. So if you go on to the next slide, Susan, thanks very much. So what are the principles? When we talk first about practicing these principles in all of our affairs, one of the questions I often get asked is what are the principles? Now, you'll hear many things in the rooms about, you know, that there's a principle behind each step. And yes, we can all look at that and and you hear things like there's honesty and there's integrity and there's transparency, but the principles in their simplest form are the 12 steps of OA. So you'll also see throughout these slides that I have chosen to do this in the I form because I don't speak for anybody else on this call and I don't speak for anybody else in OA. So the 12 steps of OA are the principles that we talk about when I talk about practicing these principles in all of my affairs. And when I chose to commit to a life of recovery, living in the 12 steps way, that's what I chose to do. I chose to practice these principles in all of my affairs. But we don't have to wait until chapter eight to actually be told that, because the big book tells us in the chapter there is a solution on page 28 that a new life has been given to us, or if you prefer a design for living that really works. And that design for living is the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. Now, if there's any newcomers on this um, workshop, please do reach out to other members because this may be a little bit confusing, this workshop today, These chapters are usually at the point when the 12 steps have been worked and you have had a spiritual awakening. So for any newcomers on the call, don't be worried if this all seems very confusing. It makes sense when you go through it. But the design for living is the principles of OA and practicing these principles in all our affairs is nothing more complicated than practicing the 12 steps of overeaters Anonymous. Now, we talk a lot about living in the spiritual solution, living in 10, 11 and 12. But that does not mean that we're ignoring the other nine steps, because actually to live in 10, 11 and 12, you always have to be doing steps one through nine. That is the way this program works. That is the way when Bill W. was inspired to write the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That is how this unfolded it was taking it from step one, right up all the way through to step 12. So Susan, if you want to go on to the next slide, please. So why do we practice them in all our affairs? You know, we hear about step 12 and and sometimes we forget that part about practicing them. You know, it's so easy to say, we carry the message to the still suffering. Great, I'm going to do service. I'm going to sponsor, I'm going to take outreach calls. And then all of a sudden, that practicing them in all our affairs becomes the smallest part of step 12. But the problem there is for the amount of time many of us spend in our recovery life, most of our life is spent in the real world of engaging with our partners, with our family, with our friends, with our loved ones at work, etc., So if we're not bringing recovery into all that we do, well, then very quickly, you know, we're not practicing this way of living. And we've been told that this is a design for living. It is not for me to only use this with my bodies in recovery, only use this with the newcomer, only use this in the rooms, and then go out there and be running on self-will in the rest of the world. And believe me, there have been many times I have happily done that. You know, and the big book tells me I am like the tornado running through the lives of those around me when I'm in that state, you know, popping up from the shelter going, ain't nothing to see here, ma, when like I've really just decimated everybody around me. And the problem with that is we don't get to run our lives that way when we choose to live out of spiritual principles. So page 19 of the big book states that we feel the elimination of our drinking. When we're here, we're talking about compulsive overeating. The reason you see drinking here is we do not change the words in the big book, is but a beginning, a much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respective homes occupations and affairs so many people say to me well practicing these principles in all our affairs the chapter two wives starts at page 104 well actually no because on page 19 I'm already being told that coming out of my compulsive overeating is only the beginning you know, I now have to go on and demonstrate the principles, the steps, remember we've talked about the principles being the steps in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. So if we move on to the next slide then, Susan. And this is what all our affairs look like, okay? So we have three chapters, And they're broken into three areas of our lives and they encompass every area of our life. You know, our intimate partners, i.e. our intimate relationships in whatever way they look for you. That is Chapter 8, the Chapter 2 Wives, starting on page 104 of the big book in the fourth edition. Family, friends and loved ones are covered under Chapter 9, the family afterwards, starting on page 122 of the big book. And work colleagues, employers, employees, teammates, team members, team leads, whatever your part is in your professional life, that is under Chapter 10 to employers on page 136. And you And you'll see here that I've interchanged these with arrows. And why do I do that? Because actually, I can take any of these chapters and apply them across my life. So, for example, sometimes if I'm having difficulty with my partner, my partner's name is John. In the interest of full disclosure, I did tell him I would be discussing him and that relationship today. So we're all kosher and good to go on that. And I will often actually read chapter nine, the family afterwards, when I'm struggling with my intimate relationship. I often send my sponsees. To read this when they're having struggles. You know, I might read the chapter two wives when I'm actually dealing with loved ones or parents, et cetera, because there's so much in there that I can actually use. And then the chapter two employers covers a myriad of things, not just my employees or my employers, but it also covers areas for me when I'm dealing with servicemen, when I'm dealing with, you know, I'm doing renovations on my home at the moment. That chapter is really beneficial to me. So for any of you that haven't delved into this, these chapters, I would really encourage you to start reading them, looking at them. There's loads of podcasts, which I'll talk about at the end of, of this presentation that you can actually go and find And and this really is the crux of getting into how we practice these principles in all our affairs. And you know, I got told a long time ago in recovery that everything I need to know is in the big book. Everything I need to know, the answer to everything is is in the big book. I just have to be willing and responsible enough to go and find it. And that has been my truth about these three chapters. I have never not yet found an answer to the question that I'm seeking when I go to God and I hear God say, well, pick up this and read the chapter, pick up this and and go to this specific page. And I'm still always amazed by how the right answer comes. You know, step 11 even tells us that we pause, you know, we ask for direction. And many times for me, the direction is go and pick up the big book, you know, go and read what you need to read. It's, it's always there. So for me, there's great comfort as well in that because I'm not on my own. You know, millions have gone before me. The first 100 wrote this book. And it's as relevant today for me almost 100 years on as it was for those that wrote it. Another thing I will hear a lot of people say is, oh, I don't like these chapters. I don't like the language in it. It's very archaic. It's very old. Well, you know what? I absolutely accept that. But when I'm dying on my hands and knees of this illness and my relationships are exploding all around me, I'm not going to worry about what the language is. I'm just going to pick up the book and do what I need to do. And I'm going to get the answers because God for me is all over these. You know, the other thing I always say to people as well, when they say that to me is the language hasn't changed. In the fir- from the first seven chapters to the next four chapters. So, you know, don't get to the point where all of a sudden you start to put roadblocks in your way. You know, our illness is cunning, baffling and powerful. If there is a way that it can stop you from getting into the solution, it is going to do that. My illness after all these years does not come through the front door, beating a drum. It comes sideways. It comes from the back room. It tells me all this crazy stuff, you know, and it's insidious in its nature. Oh, I don't really need to do that. So, if it's telling you things like, I can't identify with this, well, then study it with somebody that can bring you through it. Work it through with your sponsor. Reach out to other members. Listen to podcasts about it. You know, if it's telling you the language is old, Be reminded that the language in the first seven chapters got you to where you are today if you use the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I'm not saying the big book is the only way to do this. I mean, the OA way works absolutely just as well. The big book even tells us we do not hold the monopoly on recovery. We do not. I can only share my experience, strength and hope. And that comes through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, with that in mind, that's setting the text uh, or the context, should I say. We're now going to jump into the chapters, being mindful again that I could spend, and as some of my sponsees on this call know, hours and, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on each chapter. Okay, I am beyond passionate about them. But today we are doing a whistle stop tour. And what we're going to do at the end of each chapter is I'm going to take you through some of the top line. I'm going to keep an eye on my time of each chapter. And then we're going to spend a bit of time allowing you guys to do a little bit of work on it as well so that you get an idea and you go away with a flavor of how you can take this and use it in a more deep way when you go out there after the workshop today. So we're going to turn to page 104 which is the chapter two wives. And this is one of the, um, I suppose for me it's, yeah, I I just find this chapter fabulous. You know, you'll hear a lot of people talk about it as the Al-Anon chapter. I can't comment on that because I'm not a member of Al-Anon. So, you know, I I don't presume to talk on Al-Anon's behalf. But one of the ways that I was taught to use this chapter actually is to switch it, to switch it, to read it as if I am being told what to do in this, not the wife of the addict, but how can I show up as the person who can do what is in this chapter. And for me, that has been so powerful because when I read this the first time I was like, well, firstly, I don't have a wife. At the time I didn't even have a husband. So I was like, well, what does this even mean to me? But then um, my sponsor at the time said, read it as if you were the partner. Read it as if you can see how this chapter can tell you how to show up to your spouse how you can show up to be a better partner to, you know, your intimate loved one. And that then is a great way of seeing, oh, my goodness, there's so much in this chapter that I can actually work with. Okay, so like I said, you know, we're going to do a whistle stop, but we're going to start on page 104. And it reminds us here, if we go to the start of the very second paragraph, It says, but for every man who drinks, others are involved. The wife who trembles in fear of the next debauch, the mother and father who see their son wasting away. Among us are wives, relatives and friends whose problem has been solved, as well as some who have not yet found a happy solution. We want the wives of Alcoholics Anonymous to address the wives of men who drink too much. What they say will apply to nearly everyone bound by ties of blood or affection to an alcoholic. Now, guys, I was so deluded when I came into the rooms. I re- I knew I'd done harm, but I didn't think I'd done that much harm, you know. And I have an amazing sponsor today who happens to be on, on uh, the call right now. Hi, Denise. A. She's there. And she has taught me that I am even still a liar, cheat and a thief. And what does that mean? I am a thief because I stole a lot from the people in my life when I was eating, when I was in active addiction and I still can anytime. And what does that mean? Well, I stole the daughter from my parents because I never showed up. You know, I stole the partner from the person I was seeing at that time. I stole the friend from my friends because I was never available. I wouldn't show up, I wouldn't do things. So, you know, this chapter reminds us very early on that we did do a lot of damage you know, we did do a lot of damage and and I still can, you know, contingent on a daily reprieve of being spiritually fit, you know, and it says it starts then to go into giving us hope in the next paragraph, three lines down. It says, we want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to be overcome. We have traveled a rocky road. There is no mistake about that. We have had long rendezvous with hurt, pride, frustration, self-pity, misunderstanding and fear. These are not pleasant companions. You know, so it's telling us it's very aware of what this addiction has done for us. But it also gives us the promise that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to overcome. So we then want to moving moving in to, you know, what where we're going with this and it says on the next paragraph our loyalty and the desire that our husbands hold up their heads and be like other men have begotten all sorts of predicaments we have been unselfish and self-sacrificing we have told innumerable lies to protect our pride and our husband's reputations we have prayed we have begged we have been patient we have struck out viciously we have run away we have been hysterical we have been terror-stricken we have sought sympathy, we have had retaliatory love affairs with other men. Now, I am the addict, let me be very clear, but I have also done every single one of those things in relationships, you know, and I am the addict. That is my truth, I can do all of those, you know. So again, I'm now seeing that this chapter can tell me how to change that behaviour, how to change that behaviour in my intimate relationships, you know? So if we move on then to page 107, and if we go to the paragraph that says under these conditions, okay? So the last two pages have been talking about the situation. They've talked about living with the drunk, okay? Remember, we're talking about compulsive overeater, they're talking about living with the drunk. But they've gone through the cruelty and the terror and all of those. But it says on page 107, under these conditions, we naturally made mistakes. Some of them rose out of ignorance of alcoholism. Sometimes we sensed dimly that we were dealing with sick men. Had we fully understood the nature of the alcoholic illness, we might have behaved differently. How could men who loved their wives and children be so unthinking, so callous, so cruel? There could be no love in such persons, we thought. And just as we were being convinced of their heartlessness, they would surprise us with fresh resolves and new attentions. For a while, they would be their old sweet selves, only to dash the new structure of affection to pieces once more. A few lines down, it was so baffling, so heartbreaking. And then a few lines down again, when drinking, they were strangers. Now, again, if we come back to reading this as me looking at my partners, well, if I'm not maintaining my spiritual fitness, let me tell you, I can be that person in a relationship. You know, I can be full of resolve. I can be showing up as, you know, Florence Nightingale to John. I can be practically Dita Von Teese on steroids to John. Like I can be the best partner that ever came his way and then I stop doing everything I need to do to stay spiritually fit and all of a sudden those fresh resolves and attentions start to diminish you know and he's looking at me going well where did this loving kind tolerant person that Denise was yesterday all of a sudden be gone today because I become a stranger So, you know, my responsibility is to stay spiritually fit one day at a time. All I get is a daily reprieve. And if I don't do that, when I read this chapter, I can very quickly see the type of partner that I become, you know, and it's a stark reminder that I have to do the work. I have to do the work. You know, I have to live in the design for living so then it says you know the the last part of that page it said and even if they did not love their families how could they be so blind about themselves what had become of their judgment their common sense their willpower why could they not see that drink meant ruin to them why was it when these dangers were pointed out that they agreed and then got drunk again immediately These are some of the questions which race through the mind of every woman who has had an alcoholic husband. We hope this book has answered some of them. Perhaps your husband has been living in that strange world of alcoholism where everything is distorted and exaggerated. You can see that he really does love you and his better self, you know. And then at the end of that paragraph, that beautiful promise today, most of our men are better husbands and fathers than ever before. So again, you know, if I talk about myself and remember, I want to read this as the person who can come as a better partner. I know that my thinking is distorted. If I'm not spiritually fit, I know my thinking is distorted if I'm using food in any way. Okay. And I'm not able to see that I love anybody. And I'm certainly not able to see that I love my better self, but I do know that I am a better partner and for those men and women out there that have children, better parents than ever before when I'm practicing the principles, the 12 steps of OA in my affairs. And in the Chapter Two Wives, it's the affairs of our intimate relationship. Otherwise, it tells me I am just another very sick, unreasonable person who is very ill, you know. So it's very, very powerful then that we start looking at this and we start knowing what it is we need to do as partners the other great way to use the two wives chapter for any of you is it actually goes through showing us four different types of drinkers you know and that's really I I don't have the time to get into them all today but I would encourage you to read those pages 108 to the end of 110 because If you translate those into the way we have eaten, that will show you the progression of the illness. You know, many of us started as heavy eaters, then we progressed through, you know, and then we became compulsive overeaters that were completely and utterly powerless over the food. And that's a really great way as well, if any of you are sponsoring you know, to talk through those four, you can refer back to that when talking to your sponsees. It's a great um, tool to use in those paragraphs. Okay. So if we move to the top of page 111, now we're getting into the crux of what it's telling us to do. Okay. The first principle of success is that you should never be angry. Okay. Three lines down, Patience and good temper are most necessary. So, again, I'm reading this now as how do I show up as a better partner? Well, I don't know about any of you, but let me tell you, I'm already reading those lines going, Are you kidding me? I'm supposed to never be angry, and patience and good temper are most necessary. That just seems huge for me. But I can't do that of my own accord. That's why I have to have a spiritual awakening. That's why, as my sponsor says to me, God, 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 God. And if I don't think of God, I have to think of God some more, you know, because I can't do that. But this chapter is starting now to be very clear. It is starting to be very direct with me as to what do I need to do to show up and be a better partner, you know, Next paragraph. Our next thought is that you should never tell him what he must do about his drinking. If he gets the idea that you are a nag or a killjoy, your chance of accomplishing anything useful may be zero. He will use that as an excuse to drink more. He will tell you he is misunderstood. This may lead to lonely evenings for you. He may seek someone else to console him, not always another man. So let me tell you a bit about how this manifests in my life today. My partner is not an addict. okay? but I am quite willing to give my opinion on what he is doing at times, you know, and I can turn into the nag or the killjoy. And let me tell you, I accomplish nothing because he's it's none of my business. What John does is none of my business. You know, and I'll give you a very specific example. And I'm sure maybe one or two of you might identify is. John will come out in a top and a trousers that in my mind does not match in the slightest. Sorry to all the men out there, I'm sure you're really stylish, but the colors could be completely off the chart. And of course I'm gone into the, you know, do I say something? Do I not say something? And contingent on my spiritual fitness, I'll either keep my mouth shut or I'll do my usual hmm are you going out in that I mean straight away straight away like I've said it you know I mean I have not kept my mouth shut I certainly haven't been patient and have a good temper and he knows immediately what I'm trying to say you know another thing my sponsor says is say what you mean and mean what you say and let me tell you I'm doing neither in those I'm doing the passive aggressive are you going out in that darling hmm interesting choice is usually the next line that comes out of my mouth, you know? So again, what is this chapter telling me? It's telling me it's none of my business. You know, you know, do not tell him what he must do about his, here it says drinking, but I could put in anything. You know, his clothes, the way he empties the dishwasher, the way he hangs out the clothes on the line, the way I'm sure for the men on the line, the way she does this or she does that. You know i don't need to get into it the big book is telling me very clearly it also says you know down at the end of page 111 be sure you are not critical during such a discussion attempt instead to put yourself in his place let him see that you want to be helpful rather than critical now let me tell you again this is one of the hardest things for me to do in my intimate relationship I reckon I came out of the womb criticizing. I reckon if I could have talked when I came out of the womb, I would have been criticizing the way I was born. It is my go-to way of living. I criticize, criticize, criticize. And even if I'm not saying it out of my mouth, the look is enough. The look is enough. Even John says to me, you don't have to say anything. You just look in my direction. And I know I'm being criticized with that way. You know, and the big book again is telling me, remember switching it back. Attempt instead to put yourself in his place. Let him see that you want to be helpful rather than critical. Wow. I mean, how powerful. How powerful, you know. But again, I can't do this on my own. I need God's help here, you know, because criticism for me is one of my major character defects, you know. So, you know, I love this chapter. Like I said, I'm passionate about it. In the middle of page 112, then, you know, It says, and and again, I'm just going top line. I encourage everybody to read this and study it. It talks through then how that would unfold. And it tells me in the middle of page 112, if this kind of approach does not catch your husband's interest, it may be best to drop the subject. But after a friendly talk, your husband will usually revive the topic himself. This may take patient waiting, but it will be worth it. Meanwhile, you might try to help the wife of another serious drinker. If you act upon these principles, your husband may stop or moderate. Now, how can I apply that? First and foremost, if I am nagging or being a killjoy, just drop the subject Denise. You know, like they don't wanna hear me come back every five minutes wanting to go deep and meaningful and talk more about it and thrash it out. and Maybe we'll get a different result. This may take patient waiting, but it will be worth it. But of course, what's the biggest problem? Patience for me is a challenge. I am the most impatient person. Oh, my goodness. Character defect dropping out all over the place. I mean, honestly, guys, I am praying to God so hard for patience when I'm sitting there wanting to say something, you know, Um, and, and I love as well that it says and again, we're talking here about you know, talking to the husband who's drinking, but I am applying this to my own life. That's how I am using this chapter, you know, and again, it is telling me to be patient and drop the subject, drop the subject, you know, if we then move on to the top of page 113 and it says the first full paragraph, if he is enthusiastic, your cooperation will mean a great deal. If he is lukewarm or thinks he is not an alcoholic, we suggest you leave him alone. Avoid urging him to follow our program. The seed has been planted in his mind. He knows that thousands of men, much like of himself, have recovered. But don't remind him of this after he has been drinking, for he may be angry. Sooner or later, you are likely to find him reading the book once more. Wait until repeated, stumbling convinces him he must act, for the more you hurry him, The longer his recovery may be delayed. Now, again, great advice if you're dealing with a partner who's in in, uh, um, active addiction. But for me, this is great advice when I'm dealing with my partner, full stop. You know, if I want him to do something because I want him to do it, no, I've got to stop. He's an adult. And let me tell you, he's well capable of telling me he's an adult when he told me one day. Denise, I've been dressing myself for as long as I can remember. I don't think I need you to be dressing me right now. You know, he is well capable of doing what he needs to do. You know, so back off. You know, that's what I've got to do. Back off. But I don't want to because I want him to follow my script. You know, I want him to follow my script. I have a script written for John and I want John to follow it. And if he's not following it, I'm not feeling so good about it. You know, so this chapter is telling me exactly how I can engage with him. So if we go then, you know, to the top of page 114, it starts to tell us, you know, how we can help if you are dealing with a partner who is an addict. And again, there are many of us in recovery who also are with people who are in active addiction and this chapter will help you immensely in that as well you know I can't come at it from that angle because my partner isn't you know I would encourage you if that's your truth seek out members who do have that experience maybe check out Al-Anon you know there are many members also who can help you with Al-Anon You know, there's a lovely promise, you know, then in the middle of 114 and it says, you know, about the the person who is in addiction. It says halfway down, the majority have never returned. The power of God goes deep at the bottom of page 114. It says, you know, if your husband is a drinker, you probably worry over what other people are thinking and you hate to meet your friends. You draw more and more into yourself and you think everyone is talking about conditions at your home. You avoid the subject of drinking, even with your own parents. You do not know what to tell the children. When your husband is bad, you become a trembling recluse, wishing the telephone had never been invented. We find that most of this embarrassment is unnecessary. While you need not discuss your husband at length, you can quietly let your friends know the nature of his illness, but you must be on guard not to embarrass or harm your husband. So if I apply this to my life today, I do not know how many times I will think about what other people are thinking about my relationship, what other people are thinking about my relationship, what other people are thinking if John heads out in that bright yellow T-shirt and that trousers that isn't matching, you know, or what other people are thinking if John chooses that he doesn't want to go to a family event, which he's perfectly entitled to do. But I will go into this thing about what are others going to think of it? you know, and all of a sudden what others think of my relationship is more important than how I'm showing up as a partner to John. And that is not me being spiritually fit. You know, it tells me this embarrassment is unnecessary, but it also tells me, and here is the real crux of this, I must be on guard not to embarrass or harm your husband, your wife, your partner, whatever, you know, your intimate relationship is, because I can do that without even realizing it. You know, I can do a throwaway comment. I can make a snide remark. I can talk about him without meaning to, you know, but deep down, I know that I'm doing it. I can share, you know, stuff about him. That's not my business to share. That's not appropriate behavior. It tells me very clearly here you know, that I must not harm or embarrass him. And that's been very powerful to me because, you know, I was somebody, especially in active addiction, who thought nothing about oversharing about my life, but not just about my life, about everybody else's, you know, life as well. So thought nothing about oversharing what was going on in my intimate relationships. No, that's not appropriate. I'm not the only one in that relationship. And it's important to respect the fact that I do not overshare what is going on for John. Now, I do make the caveat that I do share with my sponsor what is going on. And I share rigorously, honestly and openly. And John knows that. So he's very aware that I share openly about that, you know. And then it says down at the bottom of page 115, your desire to protect him should not cause you to lie to people when they have a right to know where he is and what he is doing. Discuss this with him and when he is sober and in good spirits. Ask him what you should do if he places you in such a position again, but be careful not to be resentful about the last time he did so. And I'll give you a very real example of that. I come from a large family. Um, My partner is not from Ireland, so his family aren't here. And we have a lot of potentially family occasions and he doesn't want to go to all of them. To be very fair and honest with it, I wouldn't want to go to all of them either, you know, but he doesn't want to go to all of them. And that's okay. But in the past, I would have made excuses for that, you know, because I would have had a sense of embarrassment. I don't do that today. I don't lie on his behalf. If he doesn't want to come, we speak about it. And I very clearly say, actually, he didn't feel like coming. And it's no drama. The drama is in my head, not in the reality of what's going on, you know, so. We then know in the middle of page 116, it says, we have elsewhere remarked how much better life is when lived on the spiritual plane. If God can solve the age old riddle of alcoholism, he can solve your problems, too. We wives found that like everybody else, we were afflicted with pride, self-pity, vanity and all the things which go to make up the self-centered person. And we were not above selfishness or dishonesty. So again, what do we always have to come back to? We always have to come back to the fact that our primary solution is always in God. We always come back to God. God guides me in my intimate relationships. You know, And it says at the bottom of the page, now we try to put spiritual principles to work in every department of our lives. When we do that, we find it solves our problems too. The ensuing lack of fear, worry, and hurt feelings is a wonderful thing we urge you to try our program for nothing will be so helpful to your husband as the radically changed attitude toward him which god will show you how to have so we create a radically changed attitude towards our partners through living in the 12 steps okay that is how we create that radically changed attitude and god shows us how to do this you know. And then it also tells us, though, the next paragraph down, all problems will not be solved at once. Seed has started to sprout in a new soil, but growth has only begun. In spite of your newfound happiness, there will be ups and downs. Many of the old problems will still be with you. This is as it should be. That paragraph is really powerful for me, because let me share with you, I am a black and white thinker, all or nothing. John and I have a disagreement and I'm practically packing my bags leaving. It's the end of the world. It's all over. This is it. You know, that's me done. Yeah, I'm out of here. And I would say I pack my bags in my head probably 10 times a day. That's my reality. I'm a black and white thinker. But it tells me here that I'm going to have ups and downs. You know, I am going to have ups and downs. It is progress, not perfection. It also tells me in the next paragraph, the faith and sincerity of both you and your husband will be put to the test. These workouts should be regarded as part of your education, for thus you will be learning to live. You will make mistakes, but if you are in earnest, they will not drag you down. Instead, you will capitalize on them. A better way of life will emerge when they are overcome, you know. And three lines down from that, and let me tell you, this is my mantra. Your husband will sometimes be unreasonable and you will want to criticize. Starting from a speck on the domestic horizon, great thunderclouds of dispute may gather. These family dissensions are very dangerous, especially to your husband. Often you must carry the burden of avoiding them or keeping them under control. Never forget that resentment is a deadly hazard to the alcoholic. We do not mean that you have to agree with your husband whenever there is an honest difference of opinion. Just be careful not to disagree in a resentful or critical spirit. Oh, my goodness, guys. I mean, literally, if I could write my, you know, way of living, wouldn't this be fabulous if we could all live up to it? I mean, this is the aspiration. You know, it's my responsibility to avoid and keep them under control but it doesn't tell me that I have to agree with everything it tells me it's okay to honestly express a difference but I don't have to criticize and I don't have to be critical you know and then if we go into page 118 it says next at the very top next time you and he have a heated discussion no matter what the subject it should be the privilege of either to smile and say This is getting serious. I'm sorry I got disturbed. Let's talk about it later. Let me tell you guys, it has to be your privilege. We're the ones with the program. It has to be my privilege to smile and say, It's getting serious. I'm sorry I got disturbed. I'd love to tell you I am great at doing this. I'm not. I am very much a work in progress around that one. And the smile usually comes through gritted teeth and practically drawing blood from my tongue so that I don't say any more. But that is what I get to do. You know, that is what I get to do. And at the top of page 119, it tells me in the middle of the first paragraph, When resentful thoughts come, try to pause and count your blessings. After all, your family is reunited. Alcohol is no longer a problem. And you and your husband are working together toward an undreamed of future. Whatever situation you're in. And I appreciate everybody's in different situations. But, you know, my sponsor told me, and it's probably one of the. The most profound things that for every day I am in this relationship and I choose to be in this relationship, I show up 110%. I show up as the partner that I want to be. And that's good enough for today. And if I'm doing that for today, then this chapter to wives needs to stay really close to me because this is telling me how to show up as that partner. You know, and at the bottom of page 119, if you cooperate rather than complain, you will find that his excess enthusiasm will tone down. Both of you will awaken to a new sense of responsibility for others. You as well as your husband ought to think of what you can put into life instead of how much you can take out. Inevitably, your lives will be fuller for doing so. You will lose the old life to find one much better. Now, I'm not saying that all of us have partners that want to go on this journey with us and to put in things to life. But we can do this. I can do this. I can think about how I can put into the life of me and John in a better way I don't need him to do it I can take responsibility to do that how can I show up better how can I be a better partner how can I think of him before myself how can I do little things that matter you know it tells me also coming down towards the end of that page 120 make him feel absolutely free to come and go as he likes this is important you know And again, it's talking here about the husband who's a drinker, but I have had to come to learn that it's, you know, I can't control anybody. You know, I am not God and I am certainly not John's God as much and all as I'd like to be at times, let me tell you, but I am not. You know, he is free to come and go as he likes. He is free to come and go as he likes. And I can tell you, my sponsor has to remind me of that on a regular basis because I tend to forget it when he doesn't follow my script, but he is free to come and go. And it says at the end of that page, if a repetition is to be prevented, place the problem along with everything else in God's hands. You know, this is about placing your intimate relationship along with everything else in God's hands. That's how we practice this affair. You know and it says at the top of page 121 you know for ourselves for we ourselves don't always care for people who lecture us so don't lecture but what we have related is based upon experience some of it painful so this is the people who wrote this chapter telling us we had to learn these things the hard way That is why we are anxious that you understand and that you avoid these unnecessary difficulties. So to you out there who may soon be with us, we say good luck and God bless you. So, oh, my goodness, you know, that chapter, two wives, how much does it tell us about being a partner in a relationship, in an intimate relationship? And for those of you that are single, let me tell you, you know, I was single for a while in recovery. And it does. It's a great way to, you know, get you ready, get you prepared, you know, start to become that person in your life. You know, like I said from the beginning, this all interchanges relationships are relationships, you know, So like I said, it is a whistle stop tour. I would really encourage you to delve much deeper into this chapter. I'm going to um, show you now an exercise that you can do around this, but I am very conscious that we're we're going to be tight on time. So what I might do, Susan, is just show the exercise, go on to the next chapter, go through the chapters and then come back to the exercises if we've enough time. But I'll explain it to everybody because it's something you can take away and do in your own time. Can you bring up that slide, Susan? Oh, yes. Sorry. Oh, yes. sorry. No, you're all right. Hold on one second. That's OK. like I said as Susan's bringing that up remember I'm going to stay on at the end um, if anybody has any questions or anything so if you go back one just go back yeah so this is um, an exercise I was given many years ago actually when I was taken through these chapters by my sponsor at the time and my sponsor had many many years in recovery um, was an AA or a long time AA or And um, and one of the things he asked me to do was to write out what my ideal was as a partner after this part after this um, chapter so that I could understand how I would show up as a partner. Now, I apologize for the. the misspelling at the bottom so page 69 of the big book when we're talking about the sex conduct says we ask God to mold our ideals and to help us to live up to them but I need to know what my ideal is as a partner now many of us have heard in you know we hear about all this positive affirmation and write out what you want your partner to be and you know live up to that but that's not what this is about I need to know who I want to be I need to know what way I'm going to show up, you know, so that then when I do my step 10 and I fall short, I know what my amends look like. And I also know how can I correct my course? So these are just some um, items. My one is about a page long. Um, And I wrote it and I wrote it in the I form and in the now form. So you might want to put in things there like I am loving, I treat my partner with respect, I say what I mean and I mean what I say, I am consistent in my actions, I am honest, loyal and trustworthy whatever works for you like I said I wrote mine and I go back to it regularly and I look at it um, on an ongoing basis sometimes I completely forget to look at it I'll be totally up front with you and then I wonder you know when I read it I'm like oh my goodness that was great when I wrote it now I'd really want to start living it but this is a really good exercise to actually do after you've studied this chapter because it allows you to understand what you want to be, you know, and how you want to show up as a partner. And remember, God tells us that he'll mold our ideals and help us live up to them. We only have to ask. We only have to ask. But I need to understand for me what I'm asking for. So we were going to take a bit of time and actually do this. And I was going to ask some people to share. But I'm conscious that we have the other two chapters to get through. And I think this is something that you can do. We can either do some on, at the end if we have the time or you can actually do it yourself. I'm just conscious that I want to get through the chapter, Susan, I think if we keep going, maybe that might be the, the preferred way uh, for now. So we're going to move into the chapter, of the family afterwards. So you can, un- yeah, great on page 122. So you can unshare there. Um, we can come back to that afterwards. Susan, thanks a million. Is everybody with me so far can i get a show of thumbs hands nobody has fallen apart or yeah we're all doing well great great um okay so the family afterwards page 122 and this is to do with family friends loved ones blended families all types of families whatever type of relationship you have the family afterwards chapter you know tells us how to practice the principles and again If we go back to the principles, what are the principles? They are the spiritual principles. They are the steps, the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. Okay, so Chapter nine, the family afterwards. Fantastic chapter to tell us how to live in our families, in our lives, with our friends, with our loved ones. So we're going to start at the top of page um, 122 and it sets the scene. It says, our women folk have suggested certain attitudes a wife may take with the husband who is recovering. Perhaps they created the impression that he is to be wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal. Successful readjustment means the opposite. All members of, excuse me, of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding and love. This involves a process of deflation. The alcoholic, his wife, his children, his in-laws, each one is likely to have fixed ideas about the family's attitude towards himself or herself. Each is interested in having his or her wishes respected. We find the more one member of the family demands that the others concede to him, the more resentful they become. This makes for discord and unhappiness. So already we're seeing here that we're being told that we have to meet the family on a common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. And this involves a process of deflation. Well, the steps for me were a process of de- deflation because let me tell you, I am ego and pride run running the show. Self-will run riot. You know, my ego and pride, I wake up every morning and it's there. And then I go to bed every night. And it's getting ready to come again. And the only way I can manage it throughout the day is with God. It's the single biggest thing. My poor sponsor, like I am always my ego, my ego, my pride, my pride. I mean, it's it's crazy, you know, and that's the process of deflation, because if I'm coming from that place, there is no tolerance, understanding and love. I am the selfish family member that is only interested in getting my own way. Let me be very clear about that. I want it my way. I want them to follow my script. And it tells me towards the end of that page, cessation of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained abnormal condition. The entire family is to some extent ill. I am the addict. Okay, I am the addict. That is my reality. And I am the one with the program. So it's my responsibility to show up and do all I can in my family. It's not about me wanting them to understand me, me wanting them to change, me wanting them to be different. No, I take responsibility for the fact that I am in program, I am in recovery and I am in a design for living. So if we go to um, page 123, okay? And it says, uh at the top of page 123, suppose we tell you some of the obstacles a family will meet. Suppose we suggest how they may be avoided, even converted to good use for others. The family of an alcoholic longs for the return of happiness and security. They remember when father was romantic, thoughtful and successful. Today's life is measured against that of other years and when it falls short, the family may be unhappy. Family confidence in dad is rising high, The good old days will soon be back, they think. Sometimes they demand that dad bring them back instantly. Um, God, they believe, almost owes this recompense on a long overdue account. But the head of the house has spent years in pulling down the structures of business, romance, friendship, health. These things are now ruined or damaged. It will take time to clear away the wreck, though old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones. The new structures will take years to complete. And that for me is a reminder of back to the impatience. You know, like I said to you, I am an addict. I am a compulsive overeater. I am impatient to the extreme and I want everything perfect. I want it back to the way it was. But I did a lot of damage when I was compulsively overeating. I lied. I cheated. I stole. I did everything. I hurt people. I didn't show up. You know, they couldn't rely on me. It takes a long time to rub out that record, you know, and I have the privilege every day in recovery to show up and do that. But that doesn't mean that they have to forgive me immediately or that they have to think that everything is great immediately. I don't get to dictate that. And that's what this chapter is really good at doing. You know, it's really good at reminding me that it's my responsibility to show up and do this. And I don't get to say how they take it or not. You know, as much and all as I'd like to folks, I'd love to be able to tell them that it's all great, you know. But they've heard words out of me for years. They heard a million sorries followed by a million sorry for the same thing and another sorry for the same thing again. I don't get to do that, you know. And in fact, for me. I don't really tend to use sorry. You know, my sponsor has taught me that if I do something wrong today, I say I was wrong. I take full responsibility for being wrong. Now, what do I need to do to fix this? And that's what a real amend looks like, you know, because the sorry's very quickly, guys, turned into empty words for me, you know. So if we move to page 124, you know, to the middle of the second paragraph, it says, We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family, and frequently it is almost the only one. The painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problems. We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not. And when the occasion requires, each member of it should only be too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. How amazing. I mean, it gives me chills every time I read it. You know, the the promises in in chapter, the step nine promises tell us no matter how far down the scale we will see how we can benefit our experience can benefit others but this goes one deeper it says the dark past is the greatest possession you have the key to life and happiness for others with it you can avert death and misery for them so imagine if we're going around not looking at these chapters folks i mean we're missing such fantastic nuggets of information You know, and as people out there, any of us that are sponsoring, I mean, what a joy it is to bring sponsees through these chapters, you know, and to show them what we have to offer. So if we go up to the top of page 125, we hear, you know, and we're going on to the second paragraph. We families of Alcoholics Anonymous keep few skeletons in the closet. Everyone knows about the other's alcoholic troubles. This is a condition which in ordinary life would produce untold grief. There might be scandalous gossip, laughter at the expense of other people, and a tendency to take advantage of intimate information. Among us, these are rare occurrences. We do talk about each other a great deal, but we almost invariably temper such talk by a spirit of love and tolerance. So what is that saying? Well, that's saying that we're rigorously honest. We don't keep the skeletons in the closet. We have a new way of living now. You know, we're bringing everything to the table. We're talking about things openly and we're not gossiping in the family. I don't know about any of you guys, but I come my family of origin are amazing. Okay, I'll say that they did the best they could with what they have. But my goodness, do they love to talk about each other. You know, and I can be right in there on any given day contingent on my spiritual fitness. You know, my sisters and my brothers and we're all in there. And I have had to learn as hard and all as it is for me that I don't get to do that anymore. You know, I get to be the example that doesn't do that. And I just spent two days with my youngest brother who's living abroad. And at breakfast yesterday morning, he wanted to get into a conversation about my other brother. And I sat there politely with my cup of tea and I just drank my tea. I didn't criticize him. I didn't get into it. I just, you know, I just sat there, you know, because, again, it's not my, you know, my job to criticize him, but it's also not my job to get into it, you know. And I honestly did what my sponsor told me. As he was talking, I was in my head going, God, 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 God. That's all I could do because everything in me wanted to jump in there. It did, you know, but I don't get to do that. This chapter tells me that it tells me I don't get to gossip. I don't get to keep the skeletons in the closet. And it tells me another principle we observe carefully is that we do not relate intimate experiences of another person unless we are sure he would approve. We find it better when possible to stick to our own stories. A man may criticise or laugh at himself and it will affect others favourably. But criticism or ridicule coming from another often produces the contrary effect. Members of a family should watch such matters carefully. For one careless, inconsiderate remark has been known to raise the very devil. We alcoholics are sensitive people. It takes some of us a long time to outgrow that serious handicap. So again, it's not my place to share anybody else's story. I have to say, guys, that's something that I've really struggled with. It's taken me a long time to learn that because all bets were off in my family. Everybody was talking about everybody else's story. You know, two flies couldn't go up a wall and somebody was telling somebody else about it. And I was in there. I was the one doing a lot of the talking. In fact, most of the talking when I was in active addiction. I don't get to do that. And I am a sensitive person. I have to accept that. You know, I am a sensitive person. So I take things very personally. You know, what my family say a lot of the time I take personally and they don't even mean it. You know, so again, I've had to learn not to retaliate, you know, because sometimes it's not even about me. And I make it about me, even if it's not about me, because I have the disease of alcoholism, you know, compulsive overeating for us. We have the disease of compulsive overeating. The big book calls it the disease of alcoholism. That's how it shows up. I make it all about me. Super sensitive, all about me. They mightn't even be talking about me. You know, and again, the next two lines could have been written for me. Many alcoholics are enthusiasts. They run to extremes. Oh, my goodness. Life lived on extreme. You know, I am black or white, all or nothing. It's the end of the world or, you know, I'm hunkering down. I'm leaving John or I'm so loved up. You know, we're living the next 50 years together. I mean, that is the way my life goes. You know, that is just me. I am a life of extreme, you know, and the only way I can deal with that is through the 12 steps, you know, through living the life as best I can, being in the middle of the beam, you know, one hand in my sponsors, one hand in other members coming behind me and God, God all the way, you know, because it tells us at the start of this paragraph, I have a deflation process, I have to deflate, you know, so This paragraph, this chapter is already telling me what I am and how I can change, you know what I am. I'm sensitive. I run to extremes. You know, I take things personally. And then what I've got to do in the family to try and overcome with that. So if we go into the middle of page one, two, six, then it's starting to talk now about, you know, because again, remember, this book was written in the context of the father being the alcoholic. So we've got to step a bit out of that and look at it in a in a wider context, because, of course, that's very different today from what it is. And it says, you know, uh, midway down through the next paragraph, it says, if not irritable. So this is talking about um, the father. Uh, It says, if not irritable, he may seem dull and boring, not gay and affectionate as the family would like him to be. Mother may complain of inattention. They are all disappointed and often let him feel it. Beginning with such complaints, a barrier arises. He is straining every nerve to make up for lost time. He is striving to recover fortune and reputation and feels he is doing very well. Now, what's the line there that's really important? Beginning with such complaints, a barrier arises. I would I would encourage you to ask yourself, how many times within your family do you start with a complaint? I do it. You know, I can't believe you never turned on the dishwasher. I can't believe you didn't ring me. I was waiting for your call. You know, no such thing as, oh, is everything okay? Or hello, how are you? You know, straight in with the complaint. We don't get anywhere from there. We are back in criticizing. You know, and and that's something we have to remember. You know, it tells us down at the very last line in page 126, it is of little use to argue and only makes the impasse worse. The family must realize that dad, because we're talking about the drinker here, though marvellously improved, is still convalescing. They should be thankful he is sober and able to be of this world once more. Let them praise his progress. Let them remember that he's drinking wrought all kinds of damage that may take long to repair. If they sense these things, they will not take so seriously his periods of crankiness, depression or apathy, which will disappear when there is tolerance, love and spiritual understanding. Now, I can apply that to any member of my family, any friend, any loved one, whether they're an addict or not. You know, it's of little use to argue. It only makes the impasse worse. Praise the progress. You know, why do I always have to look for the things they're not doing instead of all the amazing things they are doing? You know, and why do I have to take everything so seriously? You know, can I come to the table with tolerance, love and spiritual understanding? Can I just do that? You know, and again, let me be very clear. I know there are probably people on this call, on this uh, workshop today that may be dealing with active addicts at the moment. If you are, please talk to people, go to Al-Anon, reach out to members, you know, that is not my story. I can't share that story, but there are so many people that can help you, you know, because these chapters also deal directly with that. But there are such great resources out there if you are struggling with an active addict, an alcoholic, a compulsive overeater, anybody in addiction at the moment. Okay. So if we then move down uh, towards the last paragraph, And it says, actually, let me just uh, come to something in the middle paragraph, actually, that I just want to draw your attention to. And it says, you know, although financial recovery is on the way for many of us, we found we could not place money first. For us, material well-being always followed spiritual progress. It never preceded it. That is really bitter for many of us to swallow because many of us got ourselves into serious trouble when we were in active addiction. You know, I spent a huge amount of money in my addiction and I have had to learn that actually, you know, material well-being comes after spiritual progress very rarely before. So I just wanted to draw attention to that, you know, and then down at the very last paragraph, As each member of a resentful family begins to see his shortcomings and admits them to the others, he lays a basis for helpful discussion. These family talks will be constructive if they can be carried on without heated argument, self pity, self justification, or resentful criticism. So, what are we saying there? You know, we've got to look at ourselves. You know, I can be great at looking at everybody else in order to avoid looking at myself. I can be, honestly, I can make a career out of it. I could make a career out of it, you know, but it tells me here that I've got to come and look at myself, you know, as I begin to see my shortcomings and admits them to others. And then I have to have a constructive conversation without heated argument, self-pity, self-justification or resentful criticism. Oh, my goodness, guys, self-justification. Let me tell you, I could justify anything. Absolutely anything not alone to myself but to everybody else you know i can justify it and it gets me nowhere and again the family afterwards chapter is telling me you know that's going to get me you know there'll be no it has constructive will come if i don't do that and the top of page 128 giving rather than getting will become the guiding principle i mean we hear about it all through the big book you know how could you not love these chapters people i'm an advocate come on you know we've got to start reading them you know we hear about the fact that they're the lost or the forgotten chapters well i'm reviving them okay they're not going to be lost or forgotten anymore so giving rather than getting will become the guiding principle i mean it just it just opens your heart you know because if i can remember that if i can give rather than seek to get my life is so much richer But my goodness, how quickly I can forget that, how quickly I can forget that, because many of the times I'm even giving to get, you know, like it's very rare. I'm able to give without expecting anything in return, you know, and, and it's important. So, again, here we're being told the principles what you know and how we can come to the table in terms of the family afterwards. So it then moves down through page one twenty-eight, where it's talking about, you know, how the person who was the uh, the drinker in this case, the father can swing into becoming super religious and how we deal with that. Now, you know, we do have to find balance with God and it tells us that, you know, um, it says, you know, down at the bottom of page 128, he is not so unbalanced as they might think many of us have experienced dad's elation we have indulged in spiritual intoxication like a gaunt prospector belt drawn in over the last ounce of food our pick struck gold joy at our release from a lifetime of frustration knew no bounds father feels that he has struck something better than gold for a time he may try to hug the new treasure to himself he may not see at once that he has barely scratched a limitless load which will pay dividends Only if he minds it for the rest of his life and insists on giving it away, the entire product. So we have to give away that which we have received. That is our reality as a a compulsive overeater. If I don't give away what I have been freely given, then I will not get to keep it. Okay, I will not get to keep it. And I do need to find balance you know, in, in the family around God, when I got into recovery first and I had my, the first of many spiritual awakenings, honestly, I was trying to convert people. I really was. I mean, short of, you know, bring, I was preaching, I was preaching and the big book tells me nobody wants to be preached at. It told me in two wives, but I was preaching, you know, that's not reality. You know, I, the traditions tell me, you know, um, it's attraction rather than promotion. I don't need to preach. I just need to keep working on myself. I need to keep living in this design for living. And I need to mine it for the rest of my life and give it away. And it tells me I have to give away the entire product. I don't get to give away a small piece of it. I get to give away the entire product, you know, um, and and i I love business terms. So like, you know, in business, we talk a lot about return and investment, And for me, this is where I get my return and investment. If I give it away, it returns to me and I get to live in the 12 steps and I get to live a life in recovery one day at a time, you know. And then if we come down uh, into uh, the the bottom of this paragraph, it says, um, or sorry, the bottom of this page, During those first days of convalescence, this will do more to ensure his sobriety than anything else. And what are they asking us to do? They're asking us to actually not criticise. You know, the family should again not condemn and criticise. It says, though some of his manifestations are alarming and disagreeable, we think dad will be on a firmer foundation than the man who is placing business or professional successes ahead of spiritual development. He will be less likely to drink again and anything is preferable to that. And what this really is telling me also is it's telling me to be tolerant. You know, there are family members, there are loved ones, there are my friends. And they do get on different things and they do get into different passions and different enthusiasms. And I may not necessarily agree with it, but I don't have to criticize. You know, I just have to be patient. I just have to listen. And then the next paragraph, those of us who have spent much time in the world of spiritual make-believe have eventually seen the childishness of it. This dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose, accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives. We have come to believe he would like us to keep our heads in the clouds with him, but that our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. That is where our fellow travelers are and that is where our work must be done. These are the realities for us we have found nothing incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy usefulness. How amazing. And I'm sure many of you have probably heard that statement, you know, that we keep our heads in the cloud, but our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. This is where it comes from. Chapter nine, the family afterwards, you know, And that is what we do. We have found nothing incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy usefulness. And that's how we get to live. That's how we get to practice the principles with our families, you know. So it's really, really important that we understand that. And again, this chapter is all about how do we practice these principles with family, friends and loved ones. So if we move then on, and again, I'm encouraging all of you to go in, study this chapter. I can't go into it line by line. I'm, I'm trying to just do a, a top line, you know. Um, but if we go to page 132, it tells us uh, in the middle of the uh, that page, we'll start with, we have been speaking. We have been speaking to you of serious, sometimes tragic things. We have been dealing with alcohol in its worst aspect but we aren't a glum lot if newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence they wouldn't want it we absolutely insist on enjoying life we try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders when we see a man sinking into the mire that is alcoholism we give him first aid and place what we have at his disposal For his sake, we do recount and almost relive the horrors of our past. But those of us who have tried to shoulder the entire burden and trouble of others find we are soon overcome by them. So we think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. Outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic experience out of the past. But why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered and have been given the power to help others. My goodness, we are not a glum lot. And I can tell you, I know how spiritually fit I am based on how much I can laugh at myself. If I'm taking myself really seriously and it's the end of the world and I'm all doom and gloom, and oh my goodness, I am not spiritually fit. There is no connection to God, I can tell you, in that moment. And I'm filled with resentments, and there is a massive step 10 coming. When I can laugh at myself, You know, that's when I am spiritually connected to the God of my understanding, because the God of my understanding is not serious. You know, the God of my understanding is lightness and love and laughter and joy and you know, I had my session with um, I, my sponsor yesterday morning and she said to me at the end, go have fun. And and yesterday I sat on a swing in a playground with my little nephew on, on my lap. He's two. And I was swinging. And honestly, guys, like, you know, this was not the Denise of old. You know, I would have been what do people think of me? No, nope. I was swinging away. goodo, and I was singing and I was laughing. And that's me not being a glum lot. Now, two hours later, I could have been demented in my head, but that's okay. You know, in that moment, I wasn't a glum lot. And it tells us cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. You know, it says we have recovered and been given the power to help others. And remember, in this, we are talking about practicing the principles in all our affairs. We're talking about the family afterwards. The more my family get to see me, you know, being happy, joyous and free, the more my family see that I am changed. I am changed. You know, I am living along spiritual lines. You know, who wants to be the person who sucks out the energy from the room when I walk in there? You know, I don't want to be that person. And I can be still on any given day. But this paragraph and this chapter tells me, you know, if I can come to the table and be happy, joyous and free, what a gift I can give my family. And it continues on that vein. It says, you know, down at the end of that, everybody knows that those in bad health and those who seldom play do not laugh much. So let each family play together or separately as much as their circumstances warrant. Oh, I love this next line. We are sure God wants you to be happy, joyous, and free. We cannot subscribe to the belief that this life is a veil of tears, though it once was just that for many of us. But it is clear that we made our own misery. God didn't do it. Avoid then the deliberate manufacture of misery, but if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize it as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotence. My goodness, I mean, how incredible my problems i can tell you were definitely of my own making i stood on the toes of my fellows and they retaliated and they can still retaliate cuz i can still stand on their toes you know but this book this page tells me clearly you know now i can show up i can be happy joyous and free i can do that in my family you know now let me be clear i can't do that for extended periods of time so my responsibility is to know when that starts to to wane you know and and I'm very open about this one of the greatest gifts I've been given is my relationship with my father today I went from being a daughter who didn't even speak to her father to now being able to tell my dad that I love him dearly but I also take full responsibility for the fact that I can give my best to my father in chunks of time I can't do that in extended periods so i need to take responsibility that when i'm no longer able to show up in a loving tolerant and patient way then i need to excuse myself from that situation because otherwise he gets the worst of me and that's not fair it's not appropriate and it's not the way i want to live so that's just the way that i live my program is by taking responsibility for that you know and then in the middle of page 133 it starts to talk about health you know because many of us would have had health issues and it says we are convinced that a spiritual mode of living is the most powerful health restorative. We who have recovered from serious drinking, in our cases, compulsive overeating are miracles of mental health, but we have seen remarkable transformations in our bodies, you know, but this does not mean that we disregard human health measures. God has abundantly supplied this world with fine doctors, psychologists, and practitioners of various kinds. Do not hesitate to take your health problems to such persons. And I am one of those people. I came into this room morbidly, morbidly obese. I couldn't get up the stairs. I couldn't tie my own shoelaces. I could barely manage to shower. You know, I have had a remarkable physical transformation. Let me tell you, by the time I came into these rooms, I didn't come into the room for the weight loss. I was so beaten. I didn't. It wasn't even, you know, for me, I was just so sick in my head you know, but God has restored my body to a normal, healthy body weight by the grace of God today. So I am somebody that that is true of. But it also tells us to use other things. You know, it tells us that in step 11 as well. If you belong to a, a, you know, a religious denomination, attend to that also. The big book does not say that it holds the monopoly on recovery. It allows us to utilize other things. It, in fact, encourages it. You know and then if we go to page 134 it says uh, a word about sex relations alcohol is so sexually stimulating to some men that they have overindulged couples are occasionally dismayed to find that when drinking is stopped the man tends to be impotent unless the reason is understood there may be an emotional upset. some of us have had this experience only to enjoy in a few months a finer intimacy than ever there should be no hesitancy in consulting a doctor or a psychologist if the condition persists we do not know of many cases where this difficulty has lasted long now i like to to draw attention to that for myself as well because for many of us that have had you know overeating undereating etc let me tell you i am not the expert on anything to do with sex relations i can only talk from my own space but you know I had no confidence. I had no um, I I found, you know, the side of sex conduct really, really difficult coming from a place of morbid obesity. But I and I had to deal with that. I brought it to my step four. You know, I did a lot of work on that in, in my sex conduct and I did seek outside help. And it has dramatically changed, you know, because God has restored it. And God is very much a part of my sex conduct today. There is no place that God isn't you know, so I would encourage anybody that's struggling with that to seek solutions, you know, there are solutions there, there was for me, um, because I do think sometimes we can ignore that, you know, and it's an important part, we are happy, joyous and free, and for me, that's part of being happy, joyous and free, let me be very clear about that, so, you know, um, and then, you know, I just want to say, you know, at um, the, the very last part of page 135, you know, it gives us a very uh, interesting example uh, when, you know, the husband was a coffee drinker and the wife started to nag. And it tells us, of course, our friend was wrong, dead wrong. He had to painfully admit that and his spiritual offenses. You know, though he is now an effective member of Alcoholics Anonymous, he still smokes and drinks coffee, but neither his wife nor anyone else stands in judgment. She sees she was wrong to make a burning issue out of such a matter when his more serious ailments were being rapidly cured, we have three little mottos which are apropos. Here they are: first things first, live and let live, and easy does it. So, if anybody's wondering where those three come from, it's at the end of the family afterwards. First things first: attend to the most serious thing on your list. Live and let live: if it's none of my business, let it go. God will deal with it. And easy does it. It's progress, not perfection. We claim spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. You know, so the family afterwards, an amazing chapter. You know, it has all the answers. It has all the answers. It even tells us to go and look for the answers in other places if it doesn't have it. So it has all the answers. So Susan, do you just want to pull up that slide and just to show the exercise and again, then I'll go on to the employers and I think we'll have time then to circle back. So again, it's coming back to the same concept of what is my ideal and think about your family, friends and loved ones. You know, what is your ideal as a mother, a father, a daughter, a sister, an aunt, a friend, a sponsor? And then use your step 11 to help you live up to those ideals, you know? I actually use them at times when I'm doing a step 10 to help me check them against our step 10 amends. And my sponsees have written ideals for all of of the roles they play in, in their lives. For me, it's, it's, it's a good way to be reminded of how far off the beam I actually am more so a lot of the time. And especially if I find the same resentments and fears coming up again and again with the same person, I find going back to that ideal is very, very powerful. Try to put it into the I am, you know, by God's grace, I am loving, kind, tolerant, whatever really works for you. And I would encourage you to do this exercise for me, I found it really powerful. Um, I have them and I have them in my uh, big book at the back. And, uh, and yeah, I definitely would encourage you to do this. Think about you know, where you are and, and, and what are the different things you do. I recently did one as a godmother. What's my ideal as a godmother? And and that changes because I have a godson and a goddaughter, and my godson does not want to go clothes shopping with me, let me tell you. My goddaughter is quite happy to do that. My godson wants to go and watch football. So I've had to tweak it for both of them. So even getting more specific, it really does help. So, Susan, if we take that off, we'll move into two employers. Um, yeah so you can unshare great so we're moving into chapter 10 which is the the last chapter in practicing the principles of course there is another chapter chapter 11 division for you chapter which captures everything but that's not what the scope of this is about so the two employers chapter is the chapter then that um, speaks to our professional lives now To employers, a lot of people struggle with this chapter. And I have to say I did too initially when I read it, because it is written as if it's speaking to the employer themselves. But there are many, many nuggets in here. If you switch it, you might be an employer, you might be an employee, you might be somebody that has your own business, you might be a team member, a team lead. Start to look at it from varying different angles. Because again, you know, I always find if I seek to understand part of our step 11, you know, help me seek to understand, I can find it in different ways. The great thing about this chapter also is that it tells us how serious this illness is. It tells us in the first few pages the consequences of ignoring addiction in the workplace. Okay. So if we start on page 136, we get some examples of what happened for alcoholics in the working environment. OK, for the purposes of us, it would be compulsive overeater. So this will start at the very beginning. And it says, you know, among many employers nowadays, we think of one member who has spent much of his life in the world of big business. He has hired and fired hundreds of men. He knows the alcoholic as the employer sees him. His present views ought to prove exceptionally useful to businessmen everywhere, but let him tell you. And this person goes on to tell us about some different employees he had. Okay, the first one he talks about is Mr. B. And Mr. B's brother wanted to give him a message. And this is down towards the end of page 136. And it says, I just wanted to tell you Paul jumped from a hotel window in Hartford last Saturday. He left us a note saying you were the best boss he ever had and that you were not to blame in any way. The second one he's telling us about is another time as I opened a letter which lay on my desk, a newspaper clipping fell out. It was the obituary of one of the best salesmen I ever had. After two weeks of drinking, he had placed his toe on the trigger of a loaded shotgun. The barrel was in his mouth. I had discharged him for drinking six weeks before. The third one is another experience. A woman's voice came faintly over long distance from Virginia. She wanted to know if her husband's company insurance was still in force. Four days before he had hanged himself in his woodshed, I had been obliged to discharge him for drinking, though he was brilliant, alert, and one of the best organizers I have ever known. Here were three exceptional men lost to this world because I did not understand alcoholism as I do now. What irony, I became an alcoholic myself, and but for the intervention of an understanding person, I might have followed in their footsteps. My downfall cost the business community unknown thousands of dollars, for it takes real money to train a man for an executive position. This kind of waste goes on unabated. We think the business fabric is shot through with a situation which might be helped by better understanding all around. Nearly every modern employer feels a moral responsibility for the well being of his health, and he tries to meet these responsibilities. That he has not always done so for the alcoholic is easily understood. So, what is it saying to us here in these first two pages? It's telling us that we know. You know, I was a compulsive overeater in the height of my compulsive overeating in the workplace, trying to hide it, having to take sick days off. You know, there was nowhere to go. There was nobody to go to in my working space. You know, today, as an employer, I get to come to the table very differently, you know, as a colleague, as a peer, as somebody who can be the hand that, you know, extends out, I can be that understanding person. It's telling me very clearly that, you know, we know that there are compulsive overeaters in the working place. So how can we be more tolerant, more open, more aware? You know, it says at the bottom um, of page 137, some employers have tried every known remedy. In only a few instances, there have been a lack of patience and tolerance. So again, we're being told to have patience and tolerance. And we who have imposed on the best of employers can scarcely blame them if they have been short with us. So the first way we can look at these first few pages is, If any of us are in the work setting, and it doesn't just even have to be the work setting, if you're on committees, if you're part of groups, if you're part of service positions, you know, any of those types of places where you may be in a situation where there is a compulsive overeater or an addict of any kind, we show patience and tolerance. We extend the hand of hope, okay? We hear we start to hear then about some examples. You know, it tells us midway down through 138. One day he told me about an executive of the same bank who, from his description, was undoubtedly alcoholic. This seemed to me like an opportunity to be helpful. So I spent two hours talking about alcoholism, the malady and described the symptoms and results as well as I could. His comment was very interesting, but I'm sure this man is done drinking. He has just returned from a three months leave of absence, has taken a cure, looks fine. And to clinch the matter, the board of directors told him this was his last chance. The only answer I could make was that if the man followed the usual pattern, he would go on a bigger bus than ever. I felt this was inevitable and wondered if the bank was doing the man an injustice. Now, the reality is in, you know, this book was written a long time ago and Many things have changed in the working world in terms of understanding addiction, etc. cetera. But the truth of the matter is for those who are not a compulsive overeater, the likelihood is they won't understand the disease of compulsive overeating. So you might be that only beacon in that space who can actually share with somebody. You know, this is a program of attraction rather than promotion. Our traditions tell us that, you know, so the more that you can be spiritually fit in your working space, the more you may be able to extend the hand. Okay. so if we go to page 139. okay, it tells us clearly in the middle of the page, if you desire to help, it might be well to disregard your own drinking or lack of it. Whether you are a hard drinker, a moderate drinker or a teetotaler, you may have some pretty strong opinions, perhaps prejudices. Those who drink moderately may be more annoyed with an alcoholic than a total abstainer would be. Drinking occasionally and understanding your own reactions, it is possible for you to become quite sure of many things, which so far as the alcoholic is concerned and not always so. So we know we're compulsive overeaters. Okay, so we know that but I can tell you something there are many people that I work with absolutely fabulous who do not get the illness of compulsive overeating okay I don't share openly with them that I am a compulsive overeater but I do share it with anybody who I believe it will help in the working environment because I can share it with them more than anybody else can you know but I do not try to explain this to people who I know will not understand it because it is very hard for them to set aside. And it talks here about the moderate drinker. The moderate eater sees me as something completely different. You know, they will never get the fact that I cannot stop. They just do not understand it. So again, in the working environment, You know, we have to be clear about where we can help and where it's not appropriate to share. Okay. So if you go to the bottom of page 139, and this is true, can I say, of all of us? Okay. A look at the alcoholic in your organization is many times illuminating. Is he not usually brilliant, fast thinking, imaginative, and likable? When sober, does he not work hard and have a knack of getting things done? If he had these qualities and did not drink, would he be worth retaining? Should he have the same consideration as other ailing employees? Is he worth salvaging? If your decision is yes, whether the reason be humanitarian or business or both, then the following suggestions may be helpful. Now. That is true. Remember, I've asked you to read this not only from the point of view of the employer or the employee, but also from your own point of view. So when I look at that, OK, is he not usually brilliant, fast thinking, imaginative and likable when sober, does he not work hard and have a knack of getting things done? I know that when I am spiritually fit, I am in that category. I am able to show up. I am working. I can get things done. But if I am spiritually unfit, then I am the complete opposite. I am restless, irritable and discontent. I am looking to get rather than looking to give. I am not showing up as an ideal in any way, shape or form in terms of who I want to be in business, you know, and that is really important for me to understand. You know, when I switch it and I seek to understand and I look at this chapter as me showing up as an employee then how am I maintaining spiritual fitness in order to show up and then the next few lines can you discard the feeling that you are dealing only with habit with stubbornness or a weak will if this presents difficulty rereading chapters two and three where the alcoholic sickness is discussed at length might be worthwhile You as a businessman want to know the necessities before considering the result. If you concede that your employee is ill, can he be forgiven for what he has done in the past? Can his past absurdities be forgotten? Can it be appreciated that he has been a victim of crooked thinking directly caused by the action of alcohol in his brain? Now, that paragraph is not only beneficial for the employer, but actually I need to apply that in all areas of my life. And particularly when I'm dealing with other compulsive overeaters who may be in the throes of the illness, you know, but in work, can I discard the feeling that I am dealing with only habit, stubbornness or a weak will? Because many times I can see somebody in my working environment who's struggling with an addiction of some kind. It's not for me to say that, but I can see it, you know, and I am. in my head, and I'm judging, and I'm getting frustrated. And oh, my goodness, no tolerance, no patience, none whatsoever, none whatsoever, you know, but yet I want everybody to be tolerant to me. You know, so again, I have to show up and ask, am I being tolerant? And then it says further down on page 140, if we go into the middle of the third paragraph, No wonder an alcoholic is strangely irrational. Who wouldn't be with such a fevered brain? Normal drinkers are not so affected, nor can they understand the aberrations of an alcoholic. You know, that's so important because that line, normal drinkers are not so affected, nor can they understand the aberrations of the alcoholic. Where am I oversharing at work, expecting people to understand me? where am I trying to say things, expecting them to see things my way? You know, they can't understand me. I think differently. I behave differently. I have to do things differently. But my goodness, I want them to understand me. I really want them to understand me. And then when they don't, I get hard done by. I get hard done by because they don't understand me. But what have I done? I have tried to share my truth with somebody who doesn't get it. You know, there is a place for that. It's called the rooms of OA. the room. You know, it's called my sponsor. It's called another recovered member. It's not throwing it all out over the desk at work, you know, thinking that they owe me a living because I'm feeling slightly resentful, you know, and restless, irritable and discontent. And nobody understands me and poor me and the self-pity. You know and the self-justification and how dare they not rise to my script I mean did they not get the memo did they not get the memo you know so if we move forward then because I'm conscious we're coming close to the end so I want to jump through this if we move into page 141 and it tells us you know Midway down the second paragraph, if you are sure your man does not want to stop, he may as well be discharged the sooner the better, you are not doing him a favor by keeping him on firing such an individual may prove a blessing to him, it may be just the jolt he needs. So in work, as in life, we do our best to help people to the best of our ability, but we do not help them if that's, you know, we do not continue to do it if it's not what they want, we have to be upfront and honest about what we can give you know because further down that page there are many men who want to stop and with them you can go far you know so we don't continue to and I don't mean to be harsh about it waste our time on the person who doesn't want it because there are many people who do want it and your understanding treatment of their cases will pay dividends you know people need to want to be helped. It doesn't matter whether you're dealing with them at work, whether you're dealing with them in life. You know, they need to want it. And if we are spending all our time trying to give it to somebody who doesn't want it, then we are just wasting our time with those that don't. Okay, so if we move into page 142, there's a lovely uh, question at the bottom of the, the first full paragraph. And it says, will he take every necessary step Submit to anything to get well, to stop drinking forever. And that's the same questions from page 90 of the big book. Now, I don't know about you, but that question, not only in my working environment, serves me in every area of my life. You know, if I'm not doing what I need to do to stay well, am I going to get back on the beam? Am I going to do it? But in work, it's very important. You know, will he take every necessary step to submit anything to get well? You know, and it says four lines down, we believe a man should be thoroughly probed on these points. Be satisfied he is not deceiving himself or you. Now, if anybody on here is sponsoring, doesn't this also work very well for sponsoring? You know, you can come right because what's an employer to the employer? Well, God employs me to be a sponsor and, and God is my ultimate employer. Let's be under no illusion. We are told that earlier in the big book. So at the end of the day, God is my employer and I'm his employee. So I'm doing God's work, you know, and this is a great way, even if you're struggling and you don't find what you want in chapter seven, come to this chapter and use it as well, you know, and further down, it says either you are dealing with a man who can and will get well, or you are not. If not, why waste time with him? This may seem severe, but it is usually the best course. After satisfying yourself that your man wants to recover and that he will go to any extreme to do so, you may suggest a definite course of action. And what's the definite course of action? It's the 12 steps, the 12 steps of AA, 12 steps of OA for us, because we're talking about compulsive overeating. And if you go to the top of 143, midway down the page, it says, Your man will fare better if placed in such physical condition that he can think straight and no longer craves liquor. So what are we talking about there in terms of our compulsive overeating? They have to get abstinence. They have to have abstinence before you get them into the steps. Okay, nobody's going to get spiritual awakening through working the 12 steps of OA if they are still eating their Foods, they're alcoholic foods. It just does not work. We are told it time and time again. We're told it all throughout the doctor's opinion. You know, entire abstinence is the only thing that we're told, and we're told it here as well. Okay. So it says then, if we go into the next paragraph, it says three sentences in he should understand that he must undergo a change of heart. To get over drinking will require a transformation of thought and attitude. We all had to place recovery about above everything for without recovery, we would have lost both home and business. Oh, my goodness. Can we get a shout out? Like, can we get a shout out for those few lines? I mean, it is just incredible. I mean, listen, I read this and and to hell with the two employers. I mean, this is just to me. You know, to me, you know, I have to undergo a change of heart. You know, I require a transformation of thought and attitude. I have to place recovery above everything. For without recovery, I would have lost both home, two wives and the family afterwards and business to the employer, you know, two employers. I mean, how amazing, you know, it just tells me what I have to do, you know, and if we go to page 144, and again, let me apologize, I'm whistle-stopping to it. We could have spent a week on this chapter alone. If we go down to the start of the paragraph, we hope the doctor will tell the patient the truth. Sorry, my computer. Um about his condition, whatever that happens to be. When the man is presented with this volume, it is best that no one tell him he must abide by its suggestions. The man must decide for himself. You are betting, of course, that your changed attitude plus the contents of this book will turn the trick. So if we are the example, attraction rather than promotion, this book and our changed attitude will help the person no experience is wasted you know and then if we come to the top of page 145 and it talks about being open to this person coming and talking to you about anything and it says in this connection can you remain undisturbed if the man proceeds to tell you shocking things he may for example reveal that he has padded his expense account or that he has planned to take your best customers away from you In fact, he may say almost anything if he has accepted our solution, which, as you know, demands rigorous honesty. Can you charge this off as you would a bad account and start fresh with him? If he owes you money, you may wish to make terms. If he speaks of his home situation, you can undoubtedly make helpful suggestions. Can he talk frankly with you so long as he does not bear business tales or criticize his associates? The greatest enemies of us alcoholics are resentment, jealousy, envy, frustration, and fear. And let me say this out loud, guys, because I read this all the time to remind myself. Wherever men or women are gathered together in business, there will be rivalries and arising out of these a certain amount of office politics. Sometimes we alcoholics have an idea that people are trying to pull us down Often, this is not so at all. I could not tell you how many times I think it's all about me. They're out to get me. They've said it because of me. I'm in boardrooms and somebody's saying something. And in my head, it's they're saying that now because I said such and such two weeks ago. And obviously now this is all about me. No, 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 and no. This paragraph tells me that everybody who is in a working environment of any kind, a service environment of any kind, a committee of any kind, be it a charity, be it your local school committee, be it any kind, there will be resentment, jealousy, envy, frustration and fear. There will be rivalries and politics. But we remember we were told in one of the earlier chapters we are super sensitive. So we are going to think they're out to get us. That is not true. It is just the fact. Okay, top of page one, four, six. And I'm going to whistle because I'm only three minutes. It tells us the employer cannot play favorites, but he can always defend a man from needless provocation and unfair criticism. Don't play favorites. Always defend somebody from needless provocation and unfair criticism. And coming towards the bottom of that page, an alcoholic who has recovered but holds a relatively unimportant job can talk to a man with a better position, Being on a radically different basis of life, you will never take advantage of the situation. If he is and is still trying to recover, he will tell you about it, even if it means the loss of his job, because the person will always be rigorously honest. Okay. so if we jump right through. Towards and I wish I could go into it in more detail, but unfortunately, I cannot. Okay. so I will go to the very end of page 149. It is not to be expected that an alcoholic employee will receive a disproportionate amount of time and attention. He should not be made a favorite. The right kind of man, the kind who recovers, will not want this sort of thing. He will not impose. Far from it. He will work like the devil and thank you to his dying day. Today, I own a little company. There are two alcoholic employees who produce as much as five normal salesmen. But why not? They have a new attitude and they have been saved from a living death. I have enjoyed every moment spent in getting them straightened out. We bring a new attitude to our working environment. We have been saved from a death from compulsive overeating and we get to carry this message of hope in all areas of our life. We get to practice these principles in our affairs. The last exercise was to do your ideal as an employee, as a team member, a team leader, a leader, a committee member, whatever you happen to be, Susan will put it up there, you know, and remember the big book tells us in how it works. If you go back one, Susan, yeah, on page 63, come down another one, page 63, keep coming. Yeah, next one. Yeah. (laughs) You're going the opposite, the wrong direction, I think. That's okay. There we go. Page 63. We had a new employer. So let's never forget that God is our employer. You know, I am here to do the work that God assigns me to do. That is my only job. So if you go to the next slide, um, Susan, just I just wanted to show. So, guys, I just wanted to highlight again, like I said, there are huge amounts you can do here. There's many podcasts on these chapters. Check them out on all of your different platforms read and study the chapter, preferably with your sponsor, other recovered members, other groups. There's also a great workshop by Mark H and Dave F, who are two AA people, who talk through the principles from these chapters. And if you go down to the next slide, uh, Susan, and these are all of the principles out of these chapters. There's actually three slides on them. which I don't know, Susan, if we wanna share this in the chat, I'm happy for that to be done or if it can be sent out. But for anybody that wants this, this is also, if you just um, Google Mark H and Dave S recovery workshop, you will find all of this. So as I said, we could spend, thanks, Susan. um, You can unshare if you want. We could spend, I mean, guys weeks as I know my poor sponsees on this call they know we do this a week at a time and and we get into it I am passionate about it I love 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 these chapters they are the ones I go back to again and again and again I direct my sponsees to them I read them myself you know I am certainly progress not perfection on them let me tell you far from anything real progress, baby steps a lot of the time. But I would encourage you all, I would have loved to have had more time to get into the ideals and hear all of you share. Really do it. It, It's just such a worthwhile, you know, um, exercise. Invite God in, light a little candle, ask God what the ideal is, you know, make it intimate, make it fun, you know, put on some music in the background, you know, and go one at a time. It doesn't have to be all done at once. And, you know, if you take away nothing from this, you know, be a little bit more patient, kind and tolerant to those in your life. Say something nice to your partner this evening, you know, don't criticize his random blue shirt that mightn't go with the green, um, you know, sweatshirt underneath it or whatever. And uh, yeah, you know, just do it, you know, make the most of it. Everything is in here. There's nothing that isn't in here that you can't get. So, read the chapters and I hope you get as much enjoyment out of them as I do. So Susan, I'll hand back to you. Thank you, everybody.